Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. And welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is episode 10, Dead Man Working, Part 3, Exit Strategies. In the last episode, we continued our exploration of the book Dead Man Working by Carl Saderstrom and Peter Fleming, published by Zero Books in 2012. Sederstrom and Fleming outlined the process by which workers in the post-industrial world are no longer required to fake enthusiasm for their work or their employer, but are required instead to engage in so-called emotional labour, the construction of a fake identity that nonetheless comes across as authentic. This emotional labour so blurs the lines between our professional and private selves that unlike the old Fordian systems of management control, which demanded workers create distinct work and private identities, we are now no longer able to tell who we really are beneath the mask of customer service and professional civility. Thus the world of work has come to colonise the whole of our personhood, creating a fake reality that in turn gives rise to a phenomenon known as the girlfriend effect. That is to say, work has become an artificial reality that obscures the very fact that it is not real, and through this obscuring has become the reality we now think of as real. Just as a man who pays a prostitute to pretend she is his girlfriend enters into a false reality of self-deception, So participation in emotional labour facilitates our entry into the self-deception that work is truly what it means to be human and that it represents the end purpose of human life. But even self-deception can only go so far. In today's episode, Sederstrom and Fleming describe how the limits of self-deception give rise to the kind of despair that longs for escape from the crushing burden which the world of work has imposed on human life. Some of the ways and means in which people try to facilitate that escape are absurd, while others are tragic. Now, before I go any further, I need to issue a content advisory, and specifically a trigger warning. This episode will discuss some of the ways in which people try to escape from the trauma and damage done to them by their experience of work. One of those avenues involves death as a response to work, and particularly suicide as a means of both resistance to and escape from work. If this is a discussion that will raise problematic thoughts and emotions for you, I strongly urge you to skip that part of this episode. I will be issuing another warning when we get to it. Or, feel free to proceed no further and skip this episode altogether. If you nonetheless choose to listen to this episode, 
but feel you need support afterwards, for listeners in Australia, please call Lifeline on 131114, that's 131114, or contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636. 1300 22 4636. International listeners should contact a qualified medical practitioner or counselling service in their area. Having issued that advisory, let us proceed with this episode. Sederstrom and Fleming argue that in the post-industrial world, work has no longer become what we do, it has instead become who we are. Yet its very success in colonising the whole of our lives has given rise to an existential despair that yearns for escape from its crushing dominance. Where we once aspired to be mature, hard-working, experienced adults able to handle the responsibilities which life thrusts upon us, that very ambition has become the terrifying nightmare from which we now seek escape. We long for a return to a time of innocence, when we did not know the terrible truths that now assail us, when life seemed full of possibility and promise, rather than being reduced to a bleak game of waiting for annihilation. But how are we to escape? One response to the dehumanising brutality of post-industrial work has been to seek escape not in dreams of a revolutionary utopia, or even in the kind of wealth that turns life into a never-ending holiday, but by attempting to turn back to the nursery, to the earliest days of our infancy, in other words, to refuse to accept our status as adults. This refusal is a strange inversion of a phenomenon which researchers have long noted among teenagers, the reluctance to be pegged at a particular age. Younger teens in particular are assailed by the urge to participate in what seems to them to be the mysteries enjoyed by their older, more experienced peers as well as adults. Hence they routinely buy magazines or consume products intended for an older age group, and which introduce them to the world of alcohol, drugs, fashion, relationships and sex. It's not that they necessarily want to get drunk or dress up or lose their virginity, it's just that they want to escape from who they are. They no longer want to be just teenagers. Sederstrom and Fleming cite the writer Michelle Hullebeck's novel The Possibility of an Island to illustrate their point. The central character dates a woman who works for a magazine named Lolita, after the eponymous character in Nabokov's novel. Ostensibly aimed at young teenaged girls, the owners of the magazine hope instead to attract a different audience altogether, the mothers of teenaged girls. They are homing in on the longing of thirty-something women to be young again, to enjoy limitless youth, and that this longing will overcome the absurdity of mature, otherwise sober-minded people wanting to wear clinging tops or hot pants. It's not just a cynical piece of marketing, it's the manipulation of a deeply founded desire in humans 
to not be who and what they are. In the same way, the world of corporatized work manipulates this longing by creating all sorts of motivational games, which are a tragic simulacrum of childhood play. These range from gala events, in which staff are gathered together for communal sing-alongs, through excursions to the local zoo, where employees are encouraged to discover their inner child, to, and I swear this following bit is true, camaraderie building exercises in which staff are required to wear diapers, eat baby food, have pies thrown at them, and are even spanked for failing to meet sales quotas. Moreover, these activities are not the misguided brainchild of some eccentric line manager. They are mandated and attended by senior executives who join in the fun in order to ensure all other staff are present and enacting their prescribed roles. Thus, the corporatized workplace uses motivational techniques to appropriate the longing to go back in time, to inhabit an age when the demands of profitability, productivity, and efficiency were non-existent. Moreover, by associating itself with this longing, the corporation simulates sympathy for the plight of its employees, hijacking their need to escape for its own ends. In the end, there is nowhere the employee can escape to. Even in childishness, the corporation's omnipresence prevails. Of course, most employees realise that such exercises are offensive, oppressive and absurd. But they still participate precisely because humans' infinitely flexible consciousness enables them to be physically present without engaging either their intellect or their emotions. True, we may twitch with occasional irritation or boredom, but we are too well schooled to protest or resist, lest we offend our superiors or those who genuinely believe in the utility of such activities. Sederstrom and Fleming, however, posed the question, what would happen if our numbing cynicism didn't activate, if instead we took the motivational gurus at face value and actually tried to recapture our childhood? In 2001, the Australian-born photographer Polly Borland produced a book titled The Babies. In the book, Borland documents the lives of a group of men who call themselves adult babies, and whose essential desire is to return to their infancy. Borland photographed these men sitting in giant cribs, being pushed in prams, and dancing with similarly dressed friends. Without pathologizing them, or resorting to cheap psychosexual analysis, Borland showed how they had created a distinct world for themselves, filled with their own rituals and systems of meaning. As one of the adult babies explained in a related documentary, their desire to return to infancy was about escapism, pure and simple. They wanted to escape the deadlines, the pressures, the demands and traumas of real life. It should hardly come as a surprise 
that the men who were the subject of Borland's book came in for vitriolic criticism. But as Saderstrom and Fleming observe, much of this criticism arose from the fact that, however unintentionally, these adult babies show up the scam that adulthood has become under the tyranny of corporatized work. By rejecting the ideology of cynical distance, by taking the motivational gurus at their word and playing out the fantasy of becoming an infant, these men have exposed the way in which post-industrial capitalism has used team-building and motivation culture to appropriate the desire for escape and thereby expand its existential imperium to all parts of human life. But if it's not possible to escape the corporation by going back to our infancy, is it possible to do so by going back even further to the time of non-existence before life? Among the highly paid but overstressed executives and white-collar workers of London City District, the flotation tank industry has emerged as a popular choice for those seeking escape from the terrors of corporatized labor. In the darkness of the tomb-like flotation tanks, clients float in supersaturated salt water, listening to soft piped-in ambient music. Gradually, brain activity slows, inducing a sense not merely of weightlessness, but of non-being. It feels like the dream, the ultimate dream of escape. In non-being, not even the corporation can follow you to disturb your happiness. Unfortunately, as with the adult babies, it is all an illusion. Indeed, it is a form of studied cruelty, precisely because all it is doing is setting us up for disappointment. The flotation sessions cannot last forever, and while we may emerge indubitably more relaxed, all this has done is enabled us to go back to the very environment we were desperate to escape, to endure yet another destructive day of corporatized labor. Like the drug addict with their needle and the alcoholic with their booze, the high of a flotation-induced non-being quickly wears off leaving us, if anything, worse off than we were before. And so we go back again and again, craving our hit of escape, and in the process, enrich the owners of the companies who peddle flotation therapy as a means to reduce stress, enhance creativity, and lead a generally happier life. In the end, it seems the corporation can bend even non-being to its own ends. But what if we were to make our non-being permanent? What if we were to go to the time not before, but after life? At this point, I must repeat the content advisory I issued at the beginning of this episode. What follows will be a discussion of death, and specifically suicide as a response to the traumas of work. If listening to this discussion will likely raise problematic thoughts and feelings, please feel free to skip over this part and go to the end of the episode. If you do listen to the following discussion but require support, 
please contact one of the services mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Their details will be repeated at the end. Following the global financial crisis of 2007, there were a series of highly publicised suicides among employees in the financial services sector. These included a 25-year-old stockbroker who jumped from the roof of a fashionable London restaurant while holding a glass of champagne, an insurance executive who hanged himself with his own belt in a hotel room, and a banking vice president who tricked two prostitutes into performing what they thought was a sadomasochistic sex act, but which it subsequently emerged was an elaborately staged suicide. In 2009, the 25-year-old employee of a Chinese IT manufacturing firm connected to some of the world's best-known brands killed himself by jumping from his dormitory window an action that spawned a series of copycat suicides. In response, a team of undercover investigators from the Chinese newspaper Southern Quarterly infiltrated the company, only to emerge after 28 days with horrific stories about the appalling conditions under which the employees worked, conditions that included virtual round-the-clock labour with only short breaks for meals and sleep, punitive management responses to complaints and protests, and, most cruelly of all, a whole suite of recreational and other facilities the employees were never allowed to use, but which were routinely shown off to government inspectors as a demonstration of how well staff were treated. In 1998, France Telecom was privatised, resulting in the cutting of some 40,000 jobs, a harshening of employment conditions, and an increase in workloads and management oversight. In the decade subsequently, over 60 France Telecom employees have committed suicide. France Telecom management have insisted that the deaths were related to personal circumstances and not any professional context, and were in any event occurring at a rate marginally lower than the national average. But this dismissal ignored the fact that some of those who suicided left notes behind, stating they could no longer endure the strain under which they had been labouring since the privatisation took effect. These suicides cover people in widely divergent socio-economic geographic and cultural contexts, but Cedarstrom and Fleming argue they all have one feature in common, the preference for death over the non-life of corporatized labour. The very fact that the corporation had swallowed the whole of their lives meant that death no longer held any fears. Indeed, it had taken on the nature of a gift, allowing them to finally escape the overwhelming tyranny of the post-industrial landscape. Work had become so intimately enmeshed in who they were, killing themselves became an obvious way to sever the cords of their entanglement. Indeed, as far as these people were concerned, they were already dead, death having arrived in a more profound and inescapable form than the mere act of self-extinction. But even here in this ultimate act of escape, 
Sederstrom and Fleming argue the corporation still reaches, tainting the last and most desperate of our exit strategies. The suicides in the wake of the global financial crisis are an ironic act of identification with, and loyalty to, the very context which caused the deaths to occur. Thus, for example, the banker who commits suicide in the wake of a market collapse is identifying with the market itself. Its collapse is his collapse, the vanishing of his very raison d'etre. But even those suicides which seek to be symbolic, to convey some message addressing the cause of their demise, end up being marginalised by the indifference of the corporation. Those France Telecom employees who left notes stating that they had been ruined by the transformations of privatisation were dismissed as mere statistics, an aberration about which no further consideration was necessary. Sederstrom and Fleming conclude Dead Man Working with a short postscript in which they ask the question, if the dominance of corporatism in post-industrial capitalism means we can no longer distinguish ourselves from our work, and work itself has hijacked the very essence of our humanity, even our most desperate attempts to escape, what are we to do? How can we prevent ourselves from being crushed by corporatist capitalism's overwhelming capacity to invade and colonise our lives. Their answer is that we must go on strike, but not they hasten to add an old-style industrial strike involving the mere withdrawal of labour. On the contrary, they call for a human strike, an action that gets to the bottom of the question, what does it mean to be a human being? When there is no clear separation between what we do and who we are, the refusal to participate in work must also involve a refusal to be what work in modernity has turned us into. Sederstrom and Fleming use the image of the child to illustrate their point. Unlike the adult babies, whose attempt to escape work by retreating into infancy is a hopeless fantasy, the child figure breaks with the politics of corporatized identity that lures adults into imbibing its culture, assuming its expectations, and adopting its its persona. The child figure, conventionally understood as powerless in the world of power, can in fact ignore power and thereby prevent itself from being co-opted by the insidious promises of corporate culture. As the logic of the market and the prerogatives of the corporation become ever more dominant, the child figure points the way toward detaching ourselves and our social relations from the grip of corporatized labor. How? Precisely because the child figure represents a withdrawal from power, from the logic of and participation in the culture of 
achievement and success and legitimacy that is the cornerstone of corporatism's power over human life. The child figure has no need of any of these things. Only adults crave possession of a recognised identity that substantiates itself in terms dictated by our corporatized culture, and only then because they have been encultured into doing so by a social and interpersonal context whose very fabric has been thoroughly corrupted and co-opted by post-industrial capitalism. Sederstrom and Fleming acknowledge that even trying to imagine what such a withdrawal might look like is extremely difficult, precisely because we are so close to and so completely inhabited by the power that holds us in its thrall. They argue, however, that such a withdrawal will only be achieved when we learn to unlive the lives corporatized capitalism has laid out for us, when we decouple our individual identities and social relations from the corporatized culture by which they have been colonized. This will mean learning not to conflate the commonwealth of human identity and community with capitalism per se, with not mistaking our lives and the way we live them with what we do as work, with not treating the body and its faculties as a human resource, with not mistaking our innate biopower with the injunction to work or the temptation to assume a self-regulatory role on behalf of corporatism. To the extent we fail to do so, we participate in our own self-entrapment. But to the extent we are able to achieve this withdrawal, we withdraw from the grip which the temptations to power impose upon us, turning back into our own hands the rich and life-affirming dynamics of social living. And so we have come to the conclusion of another episode of Ergasia. Before we do conclude, however, let me repeat the advisory I provided at the beginning of this episode. If anything in this episode has caused you distress or given rise to problematic thoughts and feelings, Australian listeners should contact Lifeline on 131114, 13 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. And these details will be listed on the podcast website. International listeners should contact a qualified medical practitioner or counselling service in their area. In our next episode, I will conclude this series by offering a theological reflection on dead man working, setting out what I think are the similarities and differences between Sederstrom and Fleming's analysis and a Christian theology of work, and the implications which consequently arise for a faith-based approach to work.
But that, however, is all for now. Many thanks to everyone who has been listening so far and to those of you who have supplied comments, feedback or suggestions. To leave your thoughts on this podcast or to offer any ideas, please go to the webpage at www.ergacia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. In the meantime, I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.